I kind of latched on this main idea, which is um, nature, space, sky, water, as a as a metaphor for freedom. Um, however, nature is the most difficult thing to do on stage. Why? Uh, well, because it's you know you can't put up trees. It's so cheesy, you know. <laughs> okay, you paint the sky, but look, it's it's just. Uh, today, um, you can't do that anymore. When Giacchino Rossini presented William Tell in 1829, he was the biggest name in opera. At 37, he wasn't even halfway through his life, but this was the last opera that he'd ever write. Welcome to He Sang, She Sang. I'm Marin Lazian, and we just heard comments from George Sippen, who's designed sets for everything from the opening ceremony of the Sochi Olympics to Spider-Man on Broadway. He did the set design for the Metropolitan Opera's recent production of William Tell, a show that, as we'll hear in a moment, has everything to do with soil and water and rocks and trees. Nature is the beating heart of this opera. People rearranged their lives to be at the Paris premiere of William Tell. It was the dog days of summer when Parisians normally vacated the city en masse, but not in the summer of 1829. Not when Rossini's next big show was coming to the Paris Opera. Fred Plotkin is here in the studio with me and Julian Fleischer. Fred is the author of Opera 101, A Complete Guide to Learning and Loving Opera. He's also an opera writer for WQXR's Opera Vore. And Fred has gone on record saying that William Tell is one of the best operas ever written in the world, period. William Tell, Guglielmo Tell in Italian, Guillaume Tell in French, is one of those operas that Berlioz, Wagner, Verdi, Meyerbeer... Everyone looked back to as a point of reference. When it premiered in 1829 in Paris, rehearsals began two months before, which now is not unusual, but at that time it was very unusual. They did all kinds of technical rehearsals because the opera has technical requirements like few that came before it. So it was unusual in that it was a longer rehearsal period than much they tended longer, to have? Much longer. It's also longer. a very long opera. Well, <laughs> not true. only for that reason, because he did other long operas and other composers did long operas, but it's because there were so many logistical things to accomplish that previous operas didn't call for. Okay. Give me so, one example. A boat? An avalanche. An avalanche. An avalanche. All right, that's all. Yep. All right, we'll take that. Okay, so... Um, Dayenu. <laughs> all right, so uh, everyone stayed well, in Paris. they stayed in Paris, and what they were not prepared for was the simple fact that what awaited them were things that they'd never seen before in an opera house and heard before in an opera house. And I think what's very important, we understand first, that the story is based on a play by Schiller from 1804, and Schiller became the source of many operas, including Don Carlo, many more. And he always wrote about nationalism, about freedom, about identity, not nationalism the way the word is being used now, not us against them. More patriotism. Closer to, yes, closer to patriotism, but the sense that we have a national identity that goes with our 
land, but also very specifically, and this is the breakthrough, nature. Hmm. When we talk about 19th century art, we talk about romanticism, not about being in love, but about this attachment to nature and this finding oneself in nature. So what this music does in Rossini, almost cinematically, is it depicts all kinds of nature. There are forests, there are rivers, there are lakes, there's an avalanche, there's snow, there are blooming flowers. You hear all of this in nature. I know we'll talk about the overture, and that basically is a depiction of the natural state. Are there horses like there were in the last opera? There are a few horses. Um, there you go. <laughs> we had a horse debate last week. We did. And what was what was the result? I lost. Violetta sells her horses. She sells everything. Violetta everything. unfortunately sells everything. <laughs> Including, unfortunately for me, some horses. Yes. But yes. William Tell is most famous, let's be honest, for its overture, which has one very powerful association with horses, especially a certain red scarf-wearing masked rider with a lot of bling on his belt. But before all that, this music conjured the natural world in one specific place, a Swiss village on the shores of Lake Lucerne, a place that posed a unique opportunity for set designer George Zippen. Strangely enough, I know that place so well uh, because I did a show in, in Bregenz, which is a, a city in, in Austria. Uh, it's a place where actually uh, four, maybe even five countries meet. Like literally, you you, you get on the bike and two minutes later you're in, in <laughs> Germany or you go to, uh, you know, Switzerland. So I, I um, that place um, is in my heart. Uh, it's an incredibly beautiful lake. And I, uh, I I thought of water and earth and, and sky unified into one gesture because that's that's how it is in that in that lake. You just of course you don't see you don't see the horizon, you don't see you, you, you can't you know you can't separate between water and the sky and then put mirrors on the sides. And that allowed me to create that infinity. You, and when you work in, in theater a lot, essentially the theater is, is, a, box, is a box. It's it's very contained, and you're constantly trying to break through the box, you know, blow off these walls and open that world for for the audience. And 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 of course you tr you always try to find a different way to do it. But also on very literal level, again, it's it, infinity is the is the space and the nature of this particular place and and of course Rossini set it in this in this place it's very very specific and it's maybe the biggest lake in, in Europe I'm not sure but it's believe me it feels infinite there that's a scene from the Metropolitan Opera production of William Tell from 2016 as designed by George Sippen for that Paris audience in 1829 Rossini was asking them to take a much bigger leap. Here's Fred Plotkin. In this particular case, what the audience had to do, they had to make the mental transition in this opera, really for the first time, between sound and pictures. And the people who created the scenery, yes, in earlier operas there were natural effects, Don Giovanni goes to hell, that to depict that. But nature is very different. And I invite listeners to wherever you are listening to this broadcast to close your eyes and picture forests 
and hear the rustling of leaves and the movement of animals and all of that is in there. And if Rossini did not do this, we would not have Wagner's Ring, the way Wagner wrote it. If Rossini did not do this, we would not have Verdi's Aida, the sense of do you put love of another person ahead of love of country. All of what we see in the two most famous uh, composers of the 19th century, we can find in Guillaume Tell. So is this for you why this opera is great? Well, yes, but also the music is fabulous. This is the, the culmination of Rossini's composing career. It was his last opera. All right, so we've got the overture, which you, which you mentioned. Yeah. What else for this you? This is not the William Tell overture, just so everybody knows. This is the William it Tell is overture. The Willi- it this is, is the, the one. Oh, we'll cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, no, I'd like to address that because sure. people say, oh, it's the Lone Ranger. Rossini didn't know from the Lone Ranger <laughs> at all. So therefore, the fact that this music has been brilliantly appropriated by Hollywood does not mean that we should diminish its original impact. When the audience heard it in 1829 in Paris, they went wild. Because you want to think of this overture in three sections. Sort of the thought is the first part, the cello solo. It's brilliant to start an overture with a cello solo. This is the idea, whatever the idea is that you want it to be. I think it's nationalism in the older sense of the word. But when you think of it as a person who's thinking, and then suddenly you have murmurs in the forest and rumblings and rustlings, this is not just the rumblings and rustlings of nature. It is also the rumblings and rustlings of the desire for freedom. Right. Final part, the is highly dramatic. There are hunting horns and, and everything galloping, and yes, there is that sense of a charge going on, but it's also the fulfillment of the idea. And if you think of it that way, what the overture does, which is rare in Rossini, is actually depicts the action that's about to come. So, beyond the overture, um, what's a, a moment in the music for you that again, encapsulates its greatness, the opera's greatness. Well, um, the famous tenor aria in the last act sung by Arnold, Arnoldo in Italian, Asile Hereditaire, in which he goes back to his home for the last time his father has died and bemoans the passing of that era, and he redoubles with men around him the desire to lead the charge to liberate Switzerland from Habsburg rule. And so he's with these men, and he hands out weapons, and he gets them excited. Now, Verdi could not have composed Di Quella Pira from Il Trovatore had this aria not existed. Why? Because it's the same story, and I'm not saying Verdi was a copycat. Verdi was a genius. And I, it's a tie for me as to who I love more, Verdi or Rossini. <laughs> you so don't have to choose here. I'm not comparing, but these are the two men I love most in all of all the composers. And, but Verdi always acknowledged Rossini's influence on him. And this was a case in which he said that this call to arms was exactly what he put into Il Trovatore. But frankly, the music in Rossini is harder. 
It's abs- it brings down the house. It's absolutely exciting. It's also grueling at the end of a four-hour opera to make a tenor do what a tenor has to do at the end of this opera. It's grueling to make a tenor do what a tenor has to do in the first minute when he gets warmed <laughs> up. I kind of think that Celeste Aida is harder because it comes at the very beginning of Aida, and it's very high and tight, and Sequel Guerriere, Il Falsi, with lots of S's in it, and it's murderous for the tenor. This one, if he has the resources by Act 4, he'll be fantastic because he's been saving it for the big moment. Is the fact that this is so grueling for the tenor one of the reasons that this opera hasn't been performed at the Met in the last 85 years, and it's just not performed that often? I mean, you're saying that it's great, so why don't we get to see it and hear it more? Well, um, it's very expensive to put on this opera because it is so long, and you have a big chorus, and when it's done full-on, there's a big ballet. You use a large orchestra. There are a lot of rehearsals. There are all the technical and scenic effects. Um There was discussion maybe 30, 40 years ago of doing it at the Met in Italian with, I believe, Joan Sutherland, Cheryl Milnes, and Luciano Pavarotti. Uh. And Pavarotti... (laughs) You know, take it or leave it. (laughs) (laughs) But Pavarotti ultimately decided not to do it, not because he felt that he couldn't do it, but just because that aria is really so hard. He recorded it. And I think that it's a magnificent performance on record. And when he did that, he said, I don't think I can top this in the theater. Mm. And he very frequently withdrew from things if he felt he couldn't compete with his recordings. That's not known about him. But, it um, is now. Well, he told me. I mean, I know this directly from him yeah. that he often would say, no, I can't sing that on the stage anymore because people will compare it to what they heard me do on a 1972 recording in the studio. Right. Was this just one of your lunches with Pavarotti? This was one of my dinners with Pavarotti. (laughs) I'm fortunate that I really knew him well, and we did cook together a lot. Really? Oh, yes. How did you get to know Pavarotti? Well, I met him when I worked at La Scala in the 1970s, and then I worked at the Met in the 80s, and we formed our friendship more there. And uh, I wrote my first cookbook in 1984, and he helped me get a publisher. And to do that, he gave me a recipe so that the publisher would say, okay, you can publish a recipe from Luciano Pavarotti. He was, he was a wonderful man. What was the recipe? It was spaghetti alla carbonara, which is not from his region of Emilia-Romagna. But he felt that that would be more popular. So that's why he gave me that. And he was, he was great. He was a good cook, too. Oh, I love that story. Yeah. yeah. William Tell is, first and foremost, a story about political oppression and the fight for political freedom. There's also the Romeo and Juliet love story of two people from opposite sides of the tracks who are in love with each other. But ultimately, it's about fighting for political freedom. And about archery. (laughs) Definitely about archery and apples. Um, (laughs) Fred, was Rossini a particularly political composer? Rossini was highly attuned to Europe and its politics. When I came here to talk about Italiana in Algeri, I've said it's an incredibly political opera um, because the famous aria at the end of that is Pensa alla Patria, Think of Your Homeland. And that was 1813. And that was a time when uh, Europe was at war. 
Uh, all the armies were fighting one another. Napoleon's troops were being beaten back and the Congress of Vienna realigned Europe. And for Rossini to step up in 1813 and say, think of your homeland, was incredibly political. And that premiered in Venice when Italy was under foreign occupation. And in fact, the Austrians occupied Venice. And by inserting all that comedy in that opera, he got through this think of your homeland aria. But the Austrians, when they figured out what he he was talking about, were not happy. But the audience loved the music, so they kept it. So he was attuned to Europe. Rossini wrote almost 40 operas, and this was the very last of them, even though he lived an additional 40 years. Why? Why did he stop writing after this? Was just this just the epic finale to his career as an opera composer, or was there something else going on? So here's a medical report. <laughs> When Rossini was 14 and in Bologna, he contracted syphilis. And he lived with syphilis for the rest of his life. And it was very painful. There were not the proper medications that we have now. It's remarkable that he lived to the age of 76 with that kind of condition. And when people say, why did he move from Italy to Paris? It was not for the food. It was for the medical care. It was the Affordable Care Act of the early 19th <laughs> century. And he went where the good doctors were. And he lived in Bologna before that and went back often to Bologna. And Bologna has very good doctors too. The first medical school in the world is in Bologna. But his choices were based on his medical care. And when people would report mood swings or dark moods, it related to the fact that he was a sick man. And he had depression. And when people hear his joyous music, they think, oh, what a happy-go-lucky guy he must have been. <laughs> he was a very serious artist, and he could create this joyous music. And if someone wants to ascribe a modern term such as bipolar, I won't do that. I won't diagnose going back all those years. But mood swings, yes, certainly. Uh, the ability... I have mood swings. Oh, yes. And the... I'm not bipolar. Tell me about it. I yeah. don't think I have syphilis. <laughs> no. You should probably get that checked out. <laughs> <laughs> but the he took very heavy medications loaded with mercury, and he lost his hair very early. And famous true story, he had seven toupees, one for each day of the week. <laughs> and he kept them in a closet in his home in Passy, and each... Day he put on a different toupee. Why didn't we lead with this? I Why did we bury this? We flipped our wig. And <laughs> <laughs> Stick around for the jokes. <laughs> and notably, too, and I'm not inventing this, the Wednesday and the Saturday toupees smelled particularly bad. And the reason for that is that he held salons on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And there was a lot of food preparation going on. And people wrote about the smell of his hair pieces because he was only his door was only open on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So he was the social lion of Paris. He could be very witty. He was incredibly helpful to other musicians, unlike other composers who were competitive. He had a great and generous heart. So he stopped composing because he had enough money to stop composing. He'd been working at a furious pace for decades, 
And when certain operas, such as The Barber of Seville, Italiana, Semiramide, and then William Tell secured him an income, he lived on that income. After that, he wrote little bits of music here and there for pleasure, but not because he had to do it. Right. I guess you can't blame the guy for retiring wealthy. Yeah, because if you think you're going to die, if you have a, a fatal disease and you stop in your late 30s, you may think I won't last another year or two. People died of a lot less than syphilis in, in 1830s Paris. Right. With all that money, it does make you wonder why he didn't buy himself a few more wigs, but yeah. that's another story. <laughs> well, not to also not to reduce what you just said, which was very nuanced and interesting. It sounds like, you know, in the absence of being able to actually diagnose someone, he sounds like a garden variety, creative spirit, someone who, you know, suffered and also uh, expressed great pleasure, great happiness. That's part of the bargain when you're a genius, especially of the creative variety. There's a wonderful Italian word that doesn't really translate. It's estro, E-S-T-R-O, which means spontaneous creative impulse. And I've never translated that way before, but I like that translation. I like it too. It is where you rely on your DNA, on your confidence, on your skills to create something new and special in the moment. And Italian chefs do that and Italian painters and fashion designers and composers. And this estro is really what makes Italy run. And this willingness to take a leap to accept the unknown, to rely on your resources, to bring forth at the moment it's required the genius that is required. And Rossini had Estro Verdi, Estro Michelangelo. They all had it, but it was based on years of preparation plus genius. So I want to ask a question. Or, if I'm interested in the the, the technical demands, the the the, the set demands the the lights and the costumes and I'm wondering if this is an opera for is this a good starter opera for people because of that I know that a lot of people sort of fear the opera because they feel it's long and it's passages that are hard to uh, absorb and maybe it's a bit opaque is this a good starter opera absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) it is an opera that is long and complex it's a masterpiece um Something like Italiana in Algeria is a much better first opera. To me, Rigoletto is the very best first opera of all. Mm-hmm. La Traviata is a pretty good alternative to that. But um, this is too complex. And also, unfortunately, in our modern times, people think they're supposed to understand everything. And I argue that we're not supposed to understand everything. We're supposed to allow ourselves to feel everything. And our understanding comes through what we feel rather than what we've learned. about in this is the the baritone aria, um, Soit Immobile, 
which means to remain motionless, be still. Be still. Yeah. And it's the aria that um, that William Tell sings to his son, Jamie, before he shoots an apple off of his head with an arrow. He's a very good marksman, mm-hmm. um, and he, he does it with great success. Uh, his son is alive at the end. But it's it's a beautiful aria about... Father-son. Yeah. Parental, which Verdi and Wagner both picked up on. Right. A lot. Uh, more father-daughter in both of those composers, but still, the parental role... Yes, there have been parents before in opera, Domineo and Idamante is a good example, but this particular aria is about the relationship between a father and a small boy, not an adult young man or a young woman. And it's the boy who gives courage to his father and says, I trust you, I have faith in you, and so on. What I always like to point out to people, and you can't see this if you're listening on the radio, is that in his quiver, Tell has the second arrow. And that's, that's really the secret going on there, that if he has killed his son, then he's prepared to immediately take out the second one and kill Gessler, who is the man who commanded the apple be shot. So this was highly relevant to the politics uh, in the 1800s. Do you think that there's anything that this opera has to say to us now today? Absolutely, but I want to point out something first. There was uh, a jury in Paris that always had to read a libretto before it could be set to music. And the great Rossini managed basically to get around the jury with this last opera of his with William Tell. But ultimately, they did look at it, and the first three acts were not objectionable. The last act, they had a little bit of issue with. This is uh, the uprising. It's the gathering of arms and the overthrow. But ultimately, what Rossini did was he said, well, I won't bother with the words that you object to, but he put all of the action in the music. So Azil Hereditaire is about this is where I lived. But what you hear in the music, and that's why we listen to opera first, we don't read the words, is rebellion and uprising. So it does speak to us today because I always find it interesting that people say, this is Switzerland. It's cows and chocolate and cuckoo clocks and watches and how cute. And they don't realize that even Switzerland once upon a time was politically chaotic. Right. And so they say they can't quite identify with that. But what this opera is about, in part, is different peoples who don't necessarily get along, who assert their identity. We are human, and there's so much more that we have in common than the identities and ideologies that we can find to make us separate. And how petty... Ultimately, it is to dislike the next person or to not trust the next person because you have those differences. What I am immensely proud of as a New Yorker is that more than just about any place I know in the world, we embrace these differences. New York is not perfect, but we are so much the leader that when people come to the city from everywhere in the world, they breathe free and they they see on the subway, on the packed subway, All of these different people grouped together peacefully, 
closely but peacefully. Very closely. And Right. Well, this is not Europe. No, this is not <laughs> Europe. But on the other hand, we, we live together. And as long as we have operas such as William Tell where we can experience them together – where we don't interpret it as ideology, identity, but we see it as what brings us together is so much more important than what can separate us. That's what this opera is about. It's about finding peace. So when we think of tranquil Switzerland, what we are thinking about is a certain kind of, I say, enforced peace, but it's peace. And... When we looked to that, I think what Rossini was after was communicating peace through nature, that ultimately nature is bigger than any of us. And to me, and this Wagner got back into this again in The Ring, that if we fool with nature, then we're really screwed. And Rossini said that first. If you want to hear more from Giacchino Rossini's William Tell, we have videos curated by today's panel, including, and this might be dangerous, the William Tell Overture performed by an expert yodeler. So run, don't walk to the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org. And while you're there, leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of the show. We really love to hear from you. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you park your podcasts. Our guest today was writer and opera buff extraordinaire Fred Plotkin. Thank you so much for being here, Fred. Piacere mio. We also want to thank our producer, Noel Morris. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York WQXR. I am Julian Fleischer. And I am Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening.